those are the types of easy transactions that a compliance monitoring process should and indeed in many organizations does flag. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. JM, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you here today to talk about the book, The Key Man, which was written by Simon Clark and Will Louch, which I read recently as fuel for our interview today. So when I finished the book, I emailed you because I, I was quite shocked around what I was reading. So... I, I'm keen to have you here today and I really appreciate your time because I know it is a little bit later where you are at the moment. And when I was reading the book, it reminded me a lot of that movie Wolf of Wall Street, like just sort of some of the ridiculous behaviors that were carried on and the mentality and the behavior. And when I'm reading it, the story did feel like it was something produced out of Hollywood, but in fact, it was in real life. So I guess my mind was relatively mind blown, but I know we are going to get into some of the specifics of that book. But before we do that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So please talk our listeners through where you started to where you are now. Thank you very much for having me, Carissa. I appreciate it. And it's not too, too late here, 530 uh, Washington, D.C. time. Um, But thanks a lot for having me on on your show. I appreciate it. Uh, A little bit of my background. So I uh, started my career in Washington, D.C. as a certified public accountant and, uh, you know, studied accountancy and international business. Um, started really in the public accounting space, auditing financial institutions, uh, you know, what you could consider the more boring part of public accounting, uh, but grew in and grew up in a French household, which is important to my career because very soon after about two or three years into my career at Pricewaterhouse, I, I really had an incredible opportunity to work on a, on a case that is, that has stayed with me my entire life. And that was chasing Holocaust era accounts in Swiss banks. Uh, And so as a young uh, professional auditing banks and speaking fluent French, I was, I was tapped by that my firm at the time to go over to Switzerland and, and really help uh, investigate uh, around Swiss banks for, for those issues around world war II. So, you know, really tremendous experience. And for me, a pivotal experience that moved me away from traditional accounting and auditing into the field of forensic accounting. Uh, so it was real sort of a, a, an important part of my career and uh, was where I made that jump. Uh, after about four years in Switzerland on that project, uh, I went back to uh, the U.S. and landed in New York uh, for what was uh, then PricewaterhouseCoopers, that firm PW and Coopers and Labrand merged at the time. And, you know, we're talking around 2001 timeframe at this point. And there were, if you recall, you know, it was the age of Enron. So lots of large financial statement fraud cases. So Enron and WorldCom and Xerox. Uh, And I got to work on a bunch of those cases, uh, including WorldCom and Freddie Mac in particular. And for those that have followed this space, those big financial statement issues led to pretty significant reform in the U.S. uh, and specifically a law called Sarbanes-Oxley, which really made it quite difficult for 
uh, firms like the big four or the big six at the time to both audit uh, perform public audits uh, of or audits of public companies, but also provide advisory services. So the forensic accounting work we do is typically on the advisory side. So there were questions really in the industry as to whether or not uh, those two things could continue to be done in the same type of firm. Uh, so I left Pricewaterhouse at that time with a couple of guys and we started a small firm. And uh, I was quite fortunate to get a, a really interesting phone call um, from Paul Volcker, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve in his past life and also the head of that project in Switzerland. Uh, and he was taking on the role of investigating the United Nations for um, uh, the oil for food program in Iraq. And so I had the good fortune of being at the right place at the right time and again, helping Mr. Volcker on uh, quite a historic investigation and really the largest fraud and corruption investigation probably the world will ever see. Uh, which was chasing Saddam Hussein bribes around the globe uh, for a couple of years. And that case, again, super interesting and launched me into a lot of what I've done since then, uh, the last 15 years or so, which is focusing on large uh, white collar and corruption investigations and also helping companies uh, on the compliance and internal control side to beef up their compliance and controls. So that's a bit of my background, Chris. Wow, that's awesome. Would you say because you studied traditional accounting, that's definitely helped with your knowledge in terms of the forensic accounting side of things? Yeah, it's really a critical piece to it, right? And, you know, there's a few different avenues, or I should say many different avenues uh, as being a young accountant uh, in terms of what you might be able to pursue. Uh, I've never fancied myself a very technical accountant. Um, there is a lot of complexity in the field of accounting, uh, whether it be financial reporting or tax accounting, et cetera. Uh, I was always more of a generalist, uh, but it's quite important in what we do to understand uh, how debits and credits work, uh, to understand how financial systems work, to understand how to read a trial balance and a general ledger and financial statements, right? Ultimately, what we do as forensic accountants is chase the money and follow the money. And somewhere that money needs to be accounted for in the underlying books and records of an organization. So absolutely, you have to have an understanding of accounting to do what we do. Would you say that's given you inherent advantage, perhaps, because you do have that fundamental knowledge to understand things uh, and it as opposed to perhaps someone else that hasn't come from that background? Yeah, you know, it's it's actually really interesting. The field of forensic accounting has really blown up in the last, let's say, 20 to 25 years. And uh, more and more over the course of that time period, I've met uh, folks that call themselves forensic accountants that are actually not accountants, right? Um, and so the term forensic accounting has really morphed into amalgamation of accounting and investigations and due diligence and technology. Uh, so it's been a bit of a mishmash of things, but I think at the core, the most talented uh, forensic accountants that I've worked with have started their careers in accountancy and in public accounting uh, because they really understand, again, how those debits and credits work. They understand how to reconcile accounts and ultimately, uh, those those uh, skills are the base uh, that you use really to identify problem transactions and identify red flags, which is what forensic accounting is all about. Yeah, that that's awesome. And I guess it really showed because when I was reading the book, 
Uh, I know that there were certain elements that I think because this whole, this whole situation had carried on for so long, I think that because of your knowledge, it really helped uh, unravel the situation. So let, let's get into the book now. I, I read the book quite slowly. I do read relatively fast, but I wanted to read this quite meticulously with a fine tooth comb because I didn't want to miss anything. And I know that your firm, Ankara, who you work for, was referenced in the book as well as yourself, Jean-Michel, uh, personally, which, which was pretty cool to read, actually, because I've never actually read a book and I could speak to someone that's referenced in a book. So that's my first time. So I was actually like, oh, I know that guy. Well, half know you, so to speak. Uh, so perhaps for the listeners who don't know much about the story, can you please just provide a high-level synopsis of The Key Man with Arif uh, Nakvi? and how he did defraud millions of dollars from investors, including the Gates Foundation. Sure, I'm happy to. And it's, and it's a really fascinating story and, and one uh, for which we didn't get involved until very, very late. Uh, and I should, I should probably just clarify for you, Chris, and your, and your listeners, you know, we, we, um, the, the fact that my firm worked on uh, a part of this matter uh, indeed is in the public domain now uh, we were actually outed quite early on by the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and other and, and other media outlets. Uh, and as you say, we are we are named specifically in the book. Um, that said, we are bound by confidentiality requirements and restrictions by the clients that hired us. So you know, I won't be able to get into you know a lot of details on what we did and what we saw. But uh, the book does a phenomenal job at, at laying a lot of this out. So, you know, happy to talk about what, what specifically is, is discussed in, in the book as opposed to spe- uh, other specifics that may not be. But that said, you know, The Key Man is a fascinating story. And, and again, I would urge anybody to read the book. It's uh, called The Key Man by um, uh, Simon Clark and Will Louch. And and at its core, really, it's a it's a story of of a guy R.F. Nakfi who really built an empire. Uh, he built an empire in the private equity space. And what was really fascinating uh, about this book, and again, you know, I learned a lot of this as you did and other readers, um, because I didn't get really involved until 2018. Uh, but the manner in which this gentleman built this firm is really amazing and, and astounding and, and was really based on successes early on he had in the business uh, and in the marketplace, really generating incredible returns for, for his investors and continue to grow and grow his firm. I think uh, there is a pivotal point in, in this man's story and the growth of his firm where he really um, was keen on trying to alleviate uh, a lot of the world's problems in um, developing countries. And his thesis was really that there could be room for both what is called impact investing, right, which is uh, investing in developing countries uh, to further social impact, but also make money at the same time, right? And so really this confluence of ideas that that uh, he could generate good for society and also make money and make money for his investors. And that was really the premise uh, that he used to build his firm and built his firm to a $14 billion sort of private equity empire, if you will. Uh, and really fascinating that premise 
was very attractive, right? And it's very attractive to uh, high-powered individuals and politicians because of that social impact component. Um, I think, you know, as you read the book and as you, as you followed the story, the problem is things started to go awry for a number of reasons. Uh, and, um, and as is alleged in the book and as is alleged in a number of media outlets, uh, there were misuses of funds, allegedly, uh, for both um, uh, uh, trying to plug holes in problematic investments and also allegedly for funds having been used as RF's own piggy bank. Um, again, these are things that, that are described in the book that I'm not necessarily uh, concluding on. But what ended up happening really is sort of a rob, uh, uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul scenario where uh, funds were missing in one particular location. And as incoming funds were coming in from new investors, those were being used to plug holes. Um, this lasted a long time from what we can gather from the book, years and years and years, uh, until ultimately uh, certain investors started asking questions and wouldn't take uh, no for an answer. Uh, and ultimately, that was when we got involved uh, as as helping out a number of investors to uh, audit and review some specific investments. Yeah, I think it went on for like 16 plus years. That That whole thing shocked me because one of the things I was curious is like Arif had great influences in these powerful circles, like including Richard Branson, Bill Gates, Barack Obama, and like many high net worth individuals, including like Middle Eastern sheiks. And so would you say from your experience of doing this a long time and the cases you have worked on, is this type of jovial personality and behavior common with many of the white collar crimes that you personally have dealt with? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. And I think, you know, as I thought about your question a little bit and went back to some of the big cases in my mind that I've worked on, you know, I can, I can definitely see a thread of narcissism in, in a lot of the characters that are central to some of these big frauds that I've worked on. You know, I'll take, for example, um, the case of WorldCom. WorldCom was headed by uh, a guy named Bernie Ebers. Uh, and Bernie Ebers was a young man from the middle of Mississippi, right? We're not talking New York City or Washington, D.C. or any powerhouse financial place, but, you know, the middle of Mississippi who ended up building a telecoms empire. He uh, acquired over 60 companies and ultimately uh, acquired one of the biggest telecoms companies in the U.S., MCI. Uh, he developed into a personality that uh, could not lose and would not lose, right? And sort of this narcissism led him to continue on this acquiring spree and ultimately had to uh, falsify and, and undertake one of the largest financial statement frauds at the time. Um, the stories that we heard about him were really, you know, he's the elephant in the room. Uh, what he says goes, right? There's no way but to get in, no other way but to get in line with Bernie Ebers, right? So this idea that, um, that I can do no wrong and that nobody will tell me otherwise, you know, was quite clear. I think what you get from um, the RF Nakfi story in the book is very similar. Right. It's uh, is I'm the leader, you know, I'm the captain of the ship and you need to get in line. Uh, very interesting. You know, I think about the oil for food program case 
And, um, you know, a little bit of a darker story because we're talking about Saddam Hussein. Uh, but again, very charismatic. Nobody's going to tell Saddam Hussein uh, sort of how to run the country and how to structure, you know, all of those bad acts. But even other players in that story, in particular, uh, the UN head of the program, uh, uh, a guy named Banan Savan, you know, he he was hobnobbing with heads of state, with uh, the the presidential elite around the globe, with corporate elites, right? And, and really got himself and elevated himself into a position where, again, he thought he could do no wrong. And he thought potentially that he was above the law. He was ultimately in, indicted uh, with uh, accepting bribes on, uh, on that case as well. So yeah, I do think there's this idea of surrounding yourself with power brokers um, is, is sort of central to the, to the theme. I think interestingly and very different with uh, the Abraj story is there was an altruistic component to it, right? So a lot of these other cases that I've worked on, there really isn't an altruistic angle, right? It's about making money, building a business, selling the business, you know, and making everybody a bunch of money. I think in the case of the Abraj story, you're talking about someone who was selling something that these uh, sort of rich guys and, and elite power brokers wanted, which is impact, right? How do we do good with all of this money? You know, that's what attracted, I believe, you know, the gates of the world and, um, and the popes of the world, you know, et cetera, to this particular story. So super interesting, I think, how, um, you know, he himself as an individual was, was able to sell this but it was really what he was selling, which was critical, which is impact. Yeah, you're so true. I guess that's how, like you said, he got gates of the world because he kept leading with develop, putting investment in developing countries. And so, and he was flying all over the world, going to all these conferences and talking to all these people. So I guess he built quite a name for himself. Uh, but there was a moment in the book where I think uh, the, the Gates Foundation and there was a guy in there and they started to understand, well, something's not right here. And I think they were on stage. And I don't know specifically if Bill Gates had a, an inkling, but apparently, according to the book, he was not like talking to him and he sort of sat away from him like he was polite, but he obviously wasn't the same demeanor where he had been historically speaking. So I found that interesting. So the other thing that I want to get into is, which I found really interesting, is one of the circumstances around the auditing firm that audit the fund's annual account. So it's just every time it would happen, they're like, oh my gosh, the auditing firm's going to come in. We've got to plug the, the funds. And it was literally at the 11th hour, another investor would come in, plug the hole, and then it would completely conceal the theft. So it just really got me because it was like so many times that this had happened that no one ever sort of really cottoned on to what was happening. So talk through some of your experiences in the forensic accounting, because I'm curious to know, uh, and I mean, I know you can't speak too openly about it, but if, if auditing firms looking at the funds in the account, are they just purely looking for, yep, money's in the account, tick, next? Or they're actually going through meticulously to see, well, hang on a second, a large sum of money has been plugged in like yesterday. That doesn't add up. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, Carissa. And I think, you know, for those of us that have been involved in public accounting, that have been part of 
of accounting firms and auditing firms, you know, we obviously have a different take on on how it works uh, than potentially the the general uh, investing public. I think your question is super interesting and timely. Uh, I don't know if you caught the news today, uh, but that the audit firm in question is now just subject to a $600 million lawsuit in respect of Abrage uh, or, or the alleged failures of their audit processes in Abrage. So uh, it's a $600 million price tag potentially. Um, and so the stakes are massive, right, for, for audit firms to get it right. Uh, we hear there are scandals all the time. You know, I started talking a little bit about Enron and WorldCom, you know, these big failures from the early 2000s. Uh, these, these are what led to the demise of Arthur Anderson, right, which, is, which was one of the, the powerhouse auditing firms at the time. Uh, the stakes are huge. You know, you, you don't have to do much but open a newspaper and read about, you know, 1MDB or read about Wirecard or read about Luke and Coffee and, and question why and how these frauds can go undetected, right, and how they can go undetected for so long. Um, you know, there are audit procedures that are designed uh, to give assurance on financial statements. Audit procedures are not designed to detect fraud, right? And so when you read an audit opinion uh, or, or you understand how audits work, it's, it's expressly stated that uh, audit procedures are not designed to detect fraud. Uh, they're designed to give you reasonable assurance that the financial statements are free of material misstatement, right? So there's a big gap there between what you're seeing on a financial statement and that being um, uh, accurate, you know, within a material amount and whether or not there's fraud in an organization, right? I think for those that read The Key Man, uh, they will question how the auditor could have missed these things, right? Um, as you say, large sums of money coming in and then large sums of money going out. You know, I think it'll be interesting to follow this partic these particular cases against the audit firm uh, in respect of Abraj and, and see where they go. Um, I think really, you know, you boil down to a couple key concepts in, in auditing. And, you know, these will come out if you, you know, when you read the book. Uh, the first is independence. And, you know, as an auditor of a company, uh, independence is critical. Right. So you want to make sure that there's nothing that would impair uh, your independence in the process. Uh, if you read the book, again, this is not anything that we were directly involved in, but you read the book. And, and I think there are natural questions as to whether the auditor and the audit team were truly independent from, from the corporation that they were auditing. You know, I'm quite certain this will be one of the topics and issues that get raised in this particular lawsuit. Um, the other is the standard around professional skepticism, and right, the auditor has to undertake professional skepticism. And when that auditor sees something, sees something that doesn't really make sense, they need to dig into that and they need to test more, right? Um, and so those are areas where, again, you know, we don't know what the audit firm did in terms of its procedures. We don't know whether they erred in terms of their procedures or not. Um, but I would say, you know, very interesting when you read inflows of hundreds of millions of dollars 
uh, just for certain periods of time around the dates in which uh, those balances needed to be confirmed to investors. All of those are red flags uh, that probably fall into the realm of, hey, uh, let's use our professional skepticism and really dig into what's going on. So again, it'll be really interesting to see to see how these pan out. Um, but you know, these scandals, we see them on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. Uh, and and so the auditing, I think the auditing firms and the audit community is going to continue to have to, you know, hone its skills, uh, train its uh, its staff uh, to make sure that they're exercising professional skepticism, that they're leveraging technology to find things, uh, so that ultimately, uh, hopefully, at some point. You know these types of large scandals are less frequent. Absolutely, and I ask that question because perhaps if they had done more of a, a deeper dive, this whole scandal could have been unraveled a lot earlier on in the piece. And I say this because when I'm reading the part about the Gates Foundation and like a hundred million US dollars, which is a lot more than Aussie dollars, was defrauded to you know when you talk about the Gates Foundation it was actually this victims involved, I think that's what really got me the most, right? So it's like, okay, reading one thing about, I don't know, ripping off JP Morgan or whatever. But then when you've, when you've got victims involved, that, that to me is like another level. And so would you say, I mean, you sort of touched on it before, but I'm keen to sort of explore this because you're saying you're seeing this every day, every month, and there's levels to it. I understand that, but would you say that companies just aren't, really effectively utilizing appropriate governance and compliance frameworks because i mean even this whole abrogery as they refer to it this could have been solved a lot earlier so i'm keen to understand uh are people just defaulting to old ways of auditing procedures um so that's my first question but then my follow-up question to that would be what about auditing procedures are they going to now have to change and reinvent themselves because we can't keep going the way we're going right or else people will be bankrupt left, right, and center. Yeah, I think there's two really important things to think about here, here Carissa, right? The, that year-end audit that, that we're talking about, right, that external audit function, that's just one piece of the puzzle, right? Um, and that's, that's providing independent assurance on the financial statements of the organization, okay? Um, th- there's another really important component, and that's what's the organization itself doing, right? So what's the company itself outside and separate from its external auditor? What's the company doing to make sure that um, the way in which it does business is acceptable, it's appropriate, it's within the norms of proper business, it's within the norms of its own code of conduct and within its own internal control structure, right? So separate from what the auditors are going to do at the end of the year, you know, how does the governance and the control and the compliance structure within the organization itself work, right? And so and so you can think of those two, you know, a bit in tandem, but really as two separate things. And thinking about, you know, really sophisticated organizations from a compliance and a controls perspective, you know, these are organizations that 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 don't rely on a one-time year-end audit to tell them that everything is okay, right? 
um, they're relying on their own processes and their own internal control structures to get comfort that they're doing business the way that they want to do business and that transactions are accounted for in the right way, right? When you look at, um, if we talk about compliance for a little bit, you look at one of the hallmarks of an effective compliance program in an organization, one of those hallmarks is how well is the company monitoring itself, right? How is it policing itself? And, and what we see as a best practice is really two components. It's, it's what internal audit is doing, right? And if you can, you can think about internal audit as, you know, that group within the company that's doing, you know, some of the things that your external auditor would be doing. Um, so they're looking at things retroactively, you know, they may be executing internal audits on a yearly basis for what the business has been doing over the last six to nine or 12 months. So internal audit is one piece. And then something called compliance monitoring is, is super important. And it's, it's been, you know, really something that most organizations have been doing transaction monitoring, compliance monitoring for the last five or 10 years. And that is much more timely, right? That's looking at things, not within the lens of the last year, but it's looking at things within the lens of the last month or the last week in some very sophisticated companies. It's looking at things on a real time basis, right? Where seeing an inflow of $100 million and an outflow of one week later, you know, those are precisely the kinds of things that a sophisticated compliance monitoring mechanism within a corporation would identify. Right. And it would get flagged to a particular group that's in charge with monitoring those sorts of things. Right. It, it won't get flagged to uh, the individual that's executing that transaction. It'll get flagged to, you know, that more independent function. And so when you think about, you know, the sorts of transactions that you see described in the book, in the, in the key man book, um, you could certainly envision mechanisms whereby had they been in place, you know, a hundred thousand dollar inflow in round numbers, right? And so as we understand it from the book, those transactions were big round dollars, right? And then big round dollars going out. Those are the types of easy transactions that a compliance monitoring process should and indeed in many organizations does flag, right? So that idea as you raise, you know, how, why did it take so long for these things to get identified? You know, I, I would venture to say that in an organization that has set up the proper controls and that has set up monitoring on a timely basis. And again, you don't have to invest tens of millions of dollars into real complex AI and IT processes to do this necessarily, um, but doing it on somewhat of a timely basis, be it weekly or monthly, to identify those sorts of red flags, dig into what those transactions are, and make sure that they're legitimate, right? Those are the types of things that organizations now are more and more doing. And super important to your point that they can't go on for weeks or for years and years until an outside party figures it out. Yeah, you're so right. Because I guess I was surprised that, I mean, even a riff was calling Air Arabia up at like the 11th hour going, oh, just transfer me like $175 million and they just did it. But then it was like, well, he also sat on the board. So there's probably a bit of that going on. 
So I guess, I don't know, I was just curious because, I mean, if I'm doing due diligence as an investor, are you surprised that perhaps they're like, you know, we need to make sure that this is being independently monitored to in case there were something to go wrong? Like, or were they just so sold on this guy? Because, I mean, there are other things that happened that just led to believe that people trusted this guy implicitly. So I don't know, I was just curious to see that from a due diligence point of view and a QA point of view, that things are doing things are being conducted the right way to ensure that things aren't being fraudulent. I, I don't know, like, what are your thoughts on that? Or are people going to become more inclined because of what's happening as of late? Yeah, it's a really, it's a timely point and one actually that I've been dealing with uh, significantly since uh, the fall of Abraj. Uh, we've seen a, a tremendous amount of interest from large institutional investors to do exactly what you're saying, which is rethink how they've been thinking about due diligence, right? And, um, you know, the the old way, if I, if I could venture to say in a pre-abrage world, you know, the old way that a an institutional investor, limited partner in a fund might undertake due diligence, you know, would be to look at policies and procedures, um, you know, to look at what they have on paper, uh, what is what are the compliance policies, to have some discussions with management, uh, you know, that's sort of how, and to get the audited financials, of course, you know, that's, I think, under the old regime, how uh, really the extent to which due diligence would be performed. I think in a post-Abrage world, what certainly what I'm seeing in my practice uh, and what my colleagues and I are focusing on is really uh, enhancing that view, right? Our, our position is it's not enough for that fund manager, that, that GP, to show you that they have a policy, right? You need to get comfortable that they're actually following that policy. Right. It's not enough for them to describe that they have an internal control structure and they do all of these things. You need to validate that. Right. Um, and I think in a lot of the cases that we've done, we've seen shiny websites about how great their compliance is. We've seen um, uh, websites describing how important the members of the supervisory board are. Right. And, and what a great board they have. Um, but what's the board really doing, right? Is the board really um, walking the walk on compliance and on controls? Uh, is the company really implementing and has it implemented these things that it says that it's implemented? And without really getting into the weeds, uh, you really can't tell. And so a lot of what we've been doing, in, and this includes four large investors that got burned on, on a barrage, is really rethinking how they do that and helping them really think on a risk basis. Uh, where's your risk with this particular fund manager? And think about really going down and performing some transactional testing, really getting into the weeds in some areas where that risk may be really acute. Um, I think the way that that concept is being approached now is very different than what it was four years ago. That's so interesting because, I mean, I'm just looking at myself as an individual. If I'm going to give someone $100 million, well, US dollars, I'm going to want to make sure that they're doing the right thing. But 
like a lot of these guys are just like, oh yeah, here you go. One guy overseas was like $350 million, like not even any paperwork associated to it. Like that just blows my mind. So I don't know, like, would you, when you say about getting comfortable, how would a company go about doing that due diligence? Would they hire a firm like yours to do an independent um, audit on their controls, compliance frameworks, everything like that? You guys say, yep, it looks to be okay. Like, how does that how does that work then moving forward for companies? Yeah, it's really a combination, and and I'm happy to plug myself and my firm. Um, you know, but a lot of people do this work. I think, uh, you know, it's a combination for organizations on their internal due diligence processes, um, and uh, you know the you know obviously an investor will undertake due diligence on on that manager to whom they're going to entrust 50 or a hundred or $200 million. Um, I think where, where firms could benefit is really in some of the um, really specific areas around integrity, due diligence and anti-corruption due diligence and things like AML or things like cybersecurity, which I know is one of your, or is your main hot topic, right? And so I, I think what we find typically where clients are calling us, um, you know, is they're good at assessing a whole bunch of things, uh, specifically in terms of the quality of management, you know, quality of earnings, those sorts of things, um, you know, how well that manager is going to source deals, how successful they've been. I think when we start talking about things like um, ethics and compliance, and some of the technical areas like anti-corruption and integrity and cyber, um, that's when I think we've been seeing increased interest in bringing firms like ours in to supplement some of their own internal due diligence. Would you say, I mean, you can only probably speak for the US, will this become highly regulated? Like you must, if you want to, I don't know, put money into funds management company, this needs to happen in terms of, regulation uh there has to be mandatory sort of tick boxes you have to go through are we going to see that happening because there still feels like things are not quite as structured or regimented as perhaps they should be because if they were perhaps we wouldn't have so much white collar crime sort of going on here yeah so look i think you know there's no question that you know due diligence happens internal audits happen um, external audits happen, right? All of those things are in place, right? From a, um, a, a professional standards perspective and indeed from a regulatory perspective. I think, you know, the risk you run into is you don't want to be too prescriptive in what the procedures are that need to be performed in each of those scenarios, right? So if you take what we do, for example, you know, almost all of what we do is, is, is rooted in a risk-based assessment, right? So when we go in and evaluate an organization, um, uh, we're really seeking to understand where the risk is and where the risks are most acute. And you really want to deploy your resources and your expertise where the risk is the greatest, right? That could be financial risk, it could be reputational risk, it could be all kinds of different things, right? Um, So I think there's, there's, there's probably some drawbacks in saying, okay, here's your checklist that you have to make sure that you do, because then that makes it too prescriptive and you may be missing things that otherwise mm. would be important to cover, right? So it is a fine 
you know, it's a fine balancing act. But again, I think, you know, if you talk to folks that do this for a living, like myself and others in the industry, you know, it's really the body of work that we've done, you know, that colleagues of mine have done in other firms, you know, it's that body of work really where you understand how frauds are perpetrated. You understand uh, what lapses in controls and compliance caused those frauds to allow to be perpetrated. It's really honing in on those things and helping companies plug those gaps. That's really important. You know, increasingly we're seeing organizations in the last five or 10 years really spend a lot of money up front to make sure they get those things right because the risk is so big if they get things wrong, right? You see uh, mm. uh, settlements um, and penalties coming out of the DOJ and the SEC. Um, you know, I actually worked on the Australian Wheat Board case uh, when I worked on the oral food program. Uh, you know, you think about the amount of pain that the Australian Wheat Board went to, they were the largest payer of bribes to the Iraqi regime, right? Um, and so, you know, I would venture to say that if you go back to the to the AWB um, and say, did you guys learn your lesson on that case? It's probably yes, right? And they have a much different compliance program and structure than they did uh, than they did 15 years ago, right? So the so the stick is so big now um, that organizations are indeed um, you know making sure that they get things right up front, and it's it's morphing jurisdiction by jurisdiction. You know, we're doing. Um, a lot of this kind of work in Saudi Arabia, for example, currently, um, and that's much more nascent in terms of of the regulatory regime, and hence the compliance environment is much more nascent. But but you see this really evolving around the globe. Wow, that's that's crazy because I guess I put my security hat on, and I mean, not everyone's guilty until proven innocent. It's not like that, but I'm always looking for risks. What could go wrong? Um, you know that type of mentality. So for our listeners, what are some of perhaps your key takeaways that you could share from this experience about Abraj, but also some of the other things that you've worked on? Because this is for an executive audience, perhaps, even if you want to speak more broadly and zoom out around doing the checks and balances to ensure that, you know, you're not going to be potentially be defrauded or something goes wrong in the future. Yeah, I think the key takeaways for me and and for listeners in the in the audience that are that are compliance professionals and and forensic accounts, this I'm not saying anything um, new or particularly interesting, but you know, really uh, from my perspective, you know, organizations that are most effective in in shielding themselves from these huge issues are really organizations that embrace. Uh, ethical behavior and that embrace compliance, right? So the idea of ethics and compliance is, is huge. And, and the idea uh, that tone at the top is really where it all begins. And again, for those of you that will read the key man and for you, Carissa, that have read the key man, if you think about what the tone at the top was at a barrage, and again, this is just from reading the book, um, you don't get a picture of an organization where ethics and compliance uh, were really at the top of the agenda, right? You don't get the idea that the message was, you know, we need to do the right thing. Um, we have controls and processes in place to make sure we're gonna do the right thing. And we have processes in place where if we don't do the right thing, uh, that we can detect that and remediate it, right? And fix it. 
And, and so really that's where it all starts. And I think, you know, at least in the US and in, in you know, a lot of other jurisdictions, that's really becoming the norm where ethics and compliance um, really are weaved throughout the organization. Uh, it's really important that it's not just a top level initiative, that it gets embedded into the organization, into the business, right? Ultimately, the business should own compliance uh, in much of the same way uh, as you likely talk about, you know, cybersecurity starts with everybody, um, right, within the organization, not just the IT guy. Uh, the same holds true for ethics, compliance, internal controls, is that needs to get embedded into the business. Uh, and you need to set up those structures really where, you know, everybody in the organization understands the importance of it. Uh, and that's really fed from the top uh, and making sure that the CEO, the board, you know, the CFO uh, are really hammering that message and they create the environment and the control structure whereby every employee in the organization is going to act ethically, right? And is going to behave in the way uh, that that leadership has set out. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway for me. Um, and, and finally, really that, you know, ethical companies, uh, it's quite well shown at this point, ethical companies, companies with the most enhanced and successful compliance programs do really well in the marketplace, right? So at the end of the day, it's money well served. I love those points. I think those are so accurate. I think they're definitely still that learning curve, especially in the cybersecurity space. Uh, if you haven't read the book, The Key Man, you should check it out. We're going to link it in the show notes. It was an awesome book. It will blow your mind because I literally thought I was reading a movie and I wasn't. It was real life. So, John and Michelle, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and I can't wait to get you back uh, probably next year because I really want to get into some of these cases more specifically. So thanks very much. Thanks, Carissa. It was a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.